0: Volume One, Chapter Eight of The Life of Charlotte Bronte. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Gail Mattern. The Life of Charlotte Bronte by Elizabeth Cleghorn Gaskell. Volume One, Chapter Eight. On the twenty-ninth of July, 1835, Charlotte, now a little more than nineteen years old, went as a teacher to Miss W.'s. Emily accompanied her as a pupil, but she became literally ill from homesickness, and could not settle to anything, and after passing only three months at Rowhead, returned to the Parsonage and the beloved Moors.' Miss Bronte gives the following reasons as those which prevented Emily's remaining at school and caused the substitution of her younger sister in her place at Miss W.'s. My sister Emily loved the moors. Flowers brighter than the rose bloomed in the blackest of the heath for her. Out of a sullen hollow in a livid hillside her mind could make an Eden. She found in the bleak solitude many and dear delights, and not the least and best loved, was Liberty.' Liberty was the breath of Emily's nostrils. Without it she perished. The change from her own home to a school, and from her own very noiseless, very secluded, but unrestricted and unartificial mode of life, to one of disciplined routine, though under the kindest auspices, was what she failed in enduring. Her nature proved here too strong for her fortitude. Every morning when she woke, The vision of home and the moors rushed on her, and darkened and saddened the day that lay before her. Nobody knew what ailed her but me. I knew only too well. In this struggle her health was quickly broken. Her white face, attenuated form, and failing strength threatened rapid decline. I felt in my heart she would die if she did not go home, and with this conviction obtained her recall. She had only been three months at school, and it was some years before the experiment of sending her from home was again ventured on. This physical suffering on Emily's part when absent from Hayworth, after recurring several times under similar circumstances, became at length so much an acknowledged fact that whichever was obliged to leave home, the sisters decided that Emily must remain there, where alone she could enjoy anything like good health she left it twice again in her life once going as teacher to a school in halifax for six months and afterwards accompanying charlotte to brussels for ten when at home she took the principal part of the cooking upon herself and did all the household ironing and after tabby grew old and infirm it was emily who made all the bread for the family and any one passing by the kitchen door might have seen her studying German out of an open book propped up before her, as she kneaded the dough, but no study, however interesting, interfered with the goodness of the bread, which was always light and excellent. Books were indeed a very common sight in that kitchen. The girls were taught by their father theoretically, and by their aunt practically, that to take an active part in all household work was in their position woman's simple duty but in their careful employment of time they found many an odd five minutes for reading while watching the cakes and managed the union of two kinds of employment better than king alfred charlotte's life at miss w s was a very happy one until her health failed she sincerely loved and respected the former schoolmistress to whom she was now become both companion and friend. The girls were hardly strangers to her, some of them being younger sisters of those who had been her own playmates. Though the duties of the day might be tedious and monotonous, there were always two or three happy hours to look forward to in the evening, when she and Miss W. sat together, sometimes late into the night, and had quiet, pleasant conversations, or pauses of silence as agreeable because each felt that as soon as a thought or remark occurred which they wished to express, there was an intelligent companion ready to sympathize, and yet they were not compelled to make talk. Miss W. was always anxious to afford Miss Bronte every opportunity of recreation in her power, but the difficulty often was to persuade her to avail herself of the invitations which came, urging her to spend Saturday and Sunday with E. and Mary, in their respective homes that lay within the distance of a walk she was too apt to consider that allowing herself a holiday was a dereliction of duty and to refuse herself the necessary change from something of an over ascetic spirit betokening a loss of healthy balance in either body or mind Indeed, it is clear that such was the case, from a passage referring to this time in the letter of Mary, from which I have before given extracts. Three years after, the period when they were at school together, I heard that she had gone as teacher to Miss W.'s. I went to see her, and asked how she could give so much for so little money, when she could live without it. She owned that after clothing herself in Anne there was nothing left— though she had hoped to be able to save something. She confessed it was not brilliant, but what could she do? I had nothing to answer. She seemed to have no interest or pleasure beyond the feeling of duty, and, when she could get, used to sit alone and make out. She told me afterwards that one evening she had sat in the dressing-room until it was quite dark, and then, observing it all at once, had taken sudden fright." No doubt she remembered this well when she described a similar terror getting hold upon Jane Eyre. She says in the story, I sat looking at the white bed and overshadowed walls, occasionally turning a fascinated eye towards the gleaming mirror. I began to recall what I had heard of dead men, troubled in their graves. I endeavored to be firm, shaking my hair from my eyes. I lifted my head and tried to look boldly through the dark room. At this moment a ray from the moon penetrated some aperture in the blind. No! Moonlight was still, and this stirred. Prepared as my mind was for horror, shaken as my nerves were by agitation, I thought the swift darting beam was a herald of some coming vision from another world. My heart beat thick, my head grew hot, a sound filled my ears, which I deemed the rustling of wings. Something seemed near me. Footnote jane eyre volume one page twenty end of footnote from that time mary adds her imaginations became gloomy or frightful she could not help it nor help thinking she could not forget the gloom could not sleep at night nor attend in the day she told me that one night sitting alone about this time she heard a voice repeat these lines come thou high and holy feeling SHINE O'ER MOUNTAIN, FLIT O'ER WAVE, GLEAM LIKE LIGHT O'ER DOME AND SHIELDING. There were eight or ten more lines, which I forget. She insisted that she had not made them, that she had heard a voice repeat them. It is possible that she had read them and unconsciously recalled them. They are not in the volume of poems which the sisters published. She repeated a verse of Isaiah, which she said had inspired them, and which I have forgotten whether the lines were recollected or invented the tale proves such habits of sedentary monotonous solitude of thought as would have shaken a feebler mind of course the state of health thus described came on gradually and is not to be taken as a picture of her condition in eighteen thirty six yet even then there is a despondency in some of her expressions that too sadly reminds one of some of cowper's letters and it is remarkable how deeply his poems impressed her his words his verses came more frequently to her memory i imagine than those of any other poet mary says cowper's poem the castaway was known to them all and they all at times appreciated or almost appropriated it charlotte told me once that branwell had done so and though his depression was the result of his faults it was in no other respect different from hers both were not mental but physical illnesses she was well aware of this and would ask how that mended matters as the feeling was there all the same and was not removed by knowing the cause she had a larger religious toleration than a person would have who had never questioned and the manner of recommending religion was always that of offering comfort not fiercely enforcing a duty one time I mentioned that someone had asked me what religion I was of with the view of getting me for a partisan and that i had said that that was between god and me emily who was lying on the hearthrug exclaimed that's right this was all i ever heard emily say on religious subjects charlotte was free from religious depression when in tolerable health when that failed her depression returned you have probably seen such instances they don't get over their difficulties they forget them when their stomach, or whatever organ it is that inflicts such misery on sedentary people, will let them. I have heard her condemn Socianism, Calvinism, and many other isms inconsistent with Church of Englandism. I used to wonder at her acquaintance with such subjects. May tenth, 1836. I was struck with the note you sent me with the umbrella, It showed a degree of interest in my concerns, which I have no right to expect from any earthly creature. I won't play the hypocrite. I won't answer your kind, gentle, friendly questions in the way you wish me to. Don't deceive yourself by imagining I have a bit of real goodness about me. My darling, if I were like you, I should have my face Zion-ward, though prejudice and error might occasionally fling a mist over the glorious vision before me. But I am not like you. If you knew my thoughts, the dreams that absorb me, and the fiery imagination that at times eats me up and makes me feel society as it is wretchedly insipid, you would pity and, I dare say, despise me. But I know the treasures of the Bible. I love and adore them. I can see the well of life in all its clearness and brightness but when i stoop down to drink of the pure waters they fly from my lips as if i were tantalus you are far too kind and frequent in your invitations you puzzle me i hardly know how to refuse and it is still more embarrassing to accept at any rate i cannot come this week for we are in the very thickest melee of the repetitions i was hearing the terrible fifth section when your note arrived but miss wooler says i must go to mary next friday as she promised for me on whit sunday and on sunday morning i will join you at church if it be convenient and stay till monday there's a free-and-easy proposal miss w has driven me to it she says her character is implicated good kind miss w However monotonous and trying were the duties Charlotte had to perform under her roof, there was always a genial and thoughtful friend watching over her, and urging her to partake of any little piece of innocent recreation that might come in her way. And in those midsummer holidays of 1836 her friend E. came to stay with her at Hayworth, so there was one happy time secured. Here follows a series of letters not dated but belonging to the latter portion of this year, And again we think of the gentle and melancholy Cowper. My dear, dear E., I am at this moment trembling all over with excitement after reading your note. It is what I never received before. It is the unrestrained pouring out of a warm, gentle, generous heart. I thank you with energy for this kindness. I will no longer shrink from answering your questions. I do wish to be better than I am. I pray fervently sometimes to be made so I have stings of conscience visitings of remorse glimpses of holy of inexpressible things which formerly I used to be a stranger to it may all die away and I may be in utter midnight but I implore a merciful redeemer that if this be the dawn of the gospel it may still brighten to perfect day do not mistake me do not think I am good i only wish to be so i only hate my former flippancy and forwardness oh i am no better than ever i was i am in that state of horrid gloomy uncertainty that at this moment i would submit to be old gray-haired to have passed all my youthful days of enjoyment and to be settling on the verge of the grave if i could only thereby ensure the prospect of reconciliation to god and redemption through his son's merits I never was exactly careless of these matters but I have always taken a clouded and repulsive view of them and now if possible the clouds are gathering darker and a more oppressive despondency weighs on my spirits you have cheered me my darling for one moment for an atom of time I thought I might call you my own sister in the spirit but the excitement is past, and I am now as wretched and hopeless as ever this very night I will pray as you wish me May the Almighty hear me compassionately, and I humbly hope he will, for you will strengthen my polluted petitions with your own pure requests. All is bustle and confusion round me, the ladies pressing with their sums and their lessons. If you love me, do, do, do come on Friday, I shall watch and wait for you, and if you disappoint me, I shall weep. I wish you could know the thrill of delight which I experienced, when, as I stood at the dining-room window, I saw, as he whirled past, toss your little packet over the wall. Huddersfield Market Day was still the great period for events at Rowhead. Then girls, running round the corner of the house and peeping between tree-stems and up a shadowy lane, could catch a glimpse of a father or brother driving to market in his gig might perhaps exchange a wave of the hand or see as charlotte bronte did from the window a white packet tossed over the avail by some swift strong motion of an arm the rest of the traveller's body unseen weary with the day's hard work i am sitting down to write a few lines to my dear e excuse me if i say nothing but nonsense for my mind is exhausted and dispirited It is a stormy evening, and the wind is uttering a continual moaning sound that makes me feel very melancholy. At such times, in such moods as these, it is my nature to seek repose in some calm, tranquil idea, and I have now summoned up your image to give me rest. There you sit, upright and still, in your black dress and white scarf and pale, marble-like face, just like reality. I wish you would speak to me if we should be separated if it should be our lot to live at a great distance and never to see each other again in old age how I should conjure up the memory of my youthful days and what a melancholy pleasure I should feel in dwelling on the recollection of my early friend I have some qualities that make me very miserable some feelings that you can have no participation in, that few very few people in the world can at all understand I don't pride myself on these peculiarities I strive to conceal and suppress them as much as I can but they burst out sometimes and then those who see the explosion despise me and I hate myself for days afterwards I have just received your epistle and what accompanied it I can't tell what should induce you and your sisters to waste your kindness on such a one as me I'm obliged to them and I hope you'll tell them so I'm obliged to you also, more for your note than for your present. The first gave me pleasure, the last something like pain. The nervous disturbance, which is stated to have troubled her while she was at Miss W.'s, seems to have begun to distress her about this time. At least she herself speaks of her irritable condition, which was certainly only a temporary ailment." You have been very kind to me of late, and have spared me all those little sallies of ridicule which, owing to my miserable and wretched touchiness of character, used formerly to make me wince as if I had been touched with a hot iron. Things that nobody else cares for enter into my mind and rankle there like venom. I know these feelings are absurd, and therefore I try to hide them, but they only sting the deeper for concealment. Compare this state of mind with the gentle resignation with which she had submitted to be put aside as useless, or told of her ugliness by her schoolfellows only three years before. My life, since I saw you, has passed as monotonously and unbroken as ever, nothing but teach, teach, teach from morning till night. The greatest variety I ever have is afforded by a letter from you, or by meeting with a pleasant new book. The life of Oberlin and Lee Richmond's domestic portraiture Are the last of this description the latter work strongly attracted and strangely fascinated my attention beg borrow or steal it without delay and read the memoir of wilberforce that short record of a brief uneventful life i shall never forget it it is beautiful not on account of the language in which it is written not on account of the incidents it details "'but because of the simple narrative it gives "'of a young, talented, sincere Christian. "'About this time Miss W. removed her school "'from the fine, open, breezy situation of Rowhead "'to Dewsbury Moor, only two or three miles distant. "'Her new residence was on a lower site, "'and the air was less exhilarating to one bred "'in the wild, hill village of Hayworth. "'Emily had gone as teacher to a school at Halifax.' where there were nearly forty pupils. I have had one letter from her since her departure, writes Charlotte on October second, 1836. It gives an appalling account of her duties, hard labor from six in the morning to eleven at night, with only one half hour of exercise between. This is slavery. I fear she can never stand it. When the sisters met at home in the Christmas holidays, they talked over their lives and the prospect which they afforded of employment and remuneration. They felt that it was a duty to relieve their father of the burden of their support, if not entirely, or that of all three, at least that of one or two, and naturally the lot devolved upon the elder ones to find some occupation which would enable them to do this. They knew that they were never likely to inherit much money. Mr. Bronte had but a small stipend, and was both charitable and liberal. Their aunt had an annuity of fifty pounds, but it reverted to others at her death, and her nieces had no right, and were the last persons in the world to reckon upon her savings. What could they do? Charlotte and Emily were trying teaching, and, as it seemed, without much success. The former, it is true, had the happiness of having a friend for her employer, and of being surrounded by those who knew her and loved her, but her salary was too small for her to save out of it, and her education did not entitle her to a larger. The sedentary and monotonous nature of the life, too, was preying upon her health and spirits, although, with necessity, as her mistress, she might heartily like to acknowledge this even to herself but emily that free wild untamable spirit never happy nor well but on the sweeping moors that gathered round her home that hater of strangers doomed to live amongst them and not merely to live but to slave in their service what charlotte could have borne patiently for herself she could not bear for her sister and yet what to do she had once hoped that she herself might become an artist and so earn her livelihood but her eyes had failed her in the minute and useless labour which she had imposed upon herself with a view to this end it was the household custom among these girls to sew till nine o'clock at night at that hour miss branwell generally went to bed and her niece's duties for the day were accounted done They put away their work and began to pace the room backwards and forwards up and down as often with the candles extinguished for economy's sake as not their figures glancing into the firelight and out into the shadow perpetually at this time they talked over past cares and troubles they planned for the future and consulted each other as to their plans in after years this was the time for discussing together the plots of their novels and again still later this was the time for the last surviving sister to walk alone from old accustomed habit round and round the desolate room thinking sadly upon the days that were no more but this christmas of eighteen thirty six was not without its hopes and daring aspirations they had tried their hands at story-writing in their miniature magazine long ago They all of them made out perpetually they had likewise attempted to write poetry and had a modest confidence that they had achieved a tolerable success but they knew that they might deceive themselves and that sisters judgments of each other's productions were likely to be too partial to be depended upon so charlotte as the eldest resolved to write to southey i believe from an expression in a letter to be noticed hereafter that she also consulted coleridge but i have not met with any part of that correspondence on december twenty ninth her letter to southey was dispatched and from an excitement not unnatural in a girl who has worked herself up to the pitch of writing to a poet laureate and asking his opinion of her poems she used some high-flown expressions which probably gave him the idea that she was a romantic young lady unacquainted with the realities of life this most likely was the first of those adventurous letters that passed through the little post office of hayworth morning after morning of the holiday slipped away and there was no answer the sisters had to leave home and emily to return to her distasteful duties without knowing even whether charlotte's letter had ever reached its destination not dispirited however by the delay branwell determined to try a similar venture and addressed the following letter to wordsworth it was given by the poet to mr quillenon in eighteen fifty after the name of Bronte had become known and famous i have no means of ascertaining what answer was returned by mr wordsworth but that he considered the letter remarkable may i think be inferred both from its preservation and its recurrence to his memory when the real name of currer bell was made known to the public hayworth near bradford yorkshire january nineteenth eighteen thirty seven sir I most earnestly entreat you to read and pass your judgment upon what I have sent you, because from the day of my birth to this, the nineteenth year of my life, I have lived among secluded hills where I could neither know what I was or what I could do. I read for the same reason that I ate or drank, because it was a real craving of nature. I wrote on the same principle as I spoke, out of the impulse and feelings of the mind, nor could I help it, For what came, came out, and there was the end of it. For as to self-conceit, that could not receive food from flattery, since to this hour not half a dozen people in the world know that I have ever penned a line. But a change has taken place now, sir, and I am arrived at an age wherein I must do something for myself. The powers I possess must be exercised to a definite end, and as I don't know them myself, I must ask of others what they are worth yet there is not one here to tell me and still if they are worthless time will henceforth be too precious to be wasted on them do pardon me sir that i have ventured to come before one whose works i have most loved in our literature and who most has been with me a divinity of the mind laying before him one of my writings and asking of him a judgment of its contents i must come before some one from whose sentence there is no appeal and such a one is he who has developed the theory of poetry as well as its practice and both in such a way as to claim a place in the memory of a thousand years to come my aim sir is to push out into the open world and for this i trust not poetry alone that might launch the vessel but could not bear her on sensible and scientific prose bold and vigorous efforts in my walk in life would give a farther title to the notice of the world and then again poetry ought to brighten and crown that name with glory but nothing of all this can be ever begun without means and as i don't possess these i must in every shape strive to gain them surely in this day When there is not a writing poet worth a sixpence, the field must be open if a better man can step forward. What I send you is the prefatory scene of a much longer subject, in which I have striven to develop strong passions and weak principles, struggling with a high imagination and acute feelings till, as youth hardens towards age, evil deeds and short enjoyments end in mental misery and bodily ruin now to send you the whole of this would be a mark upon your patience what you see does not even pretend to be more than the description of an imaginative child but read it sir and as you would hold a light to one in utter darkness as you value your own kind-heartedness return me an answer if but one word telling me whether i should write on or write no more forgive undue warmth because my feelings in this matter cannot be cool and believe me sir with deep respect your really humble servant p b bronte end of chapter eight